Hello, this is Contractor Coffee Club Podcast, presented by EGIA, and I'm your host, Mark Madison. This podcast is hosted on egiaorg slash podcast, where you can also find links to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or Google Play, along with an archive of all previous episodes, a submission form for our listener Q&A, and the link to take the latest EGIA snapshot survey. In today's episode, we have the privilege of talking to Mr. Weldon Long. Weldon, how are you? I'm doing great, Mark. How are you doing today? If I was doing any better, I'd be twins. So there's that. <laughs> I, I I have to start by saying a number of years ago, uh, there was about a six to eight week stretch where I must have had 10 or 15 people say, do you know Weldon Long? And after a while, I got tired of people asking me that. And they, I said, well, what, why, do you, why are you asking? And they said, well, you guys are a lot alike, man. You guys should be friends. And I said, huh. And then shortly thereafter, I was at Comfort Tech, and that's where you and I met. And yep. I think I came in, and you were you were getting ready to present. And I was that right? Is that when we met? Yep, I was doing a little breakout session. And, uh, of course, your name and reputation had preceded uh, you as well. And, had you know, of course, I've been reading your, your e-zine for many, many years uh, that you've been doing, your, uh, your e-newsletter. And uh, so I definitely knew you by reputation, but yeah, I was doing a breakout session at Comfort Tech probably three or four years ago when we finally got yeah. a chance to meet. Yeah, and I remember you saying you should write that once a week, and I said, nah, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of once a month, you know, so. Yeah, well, a lot of work. Good golly, I am so happy to have you on. I wish you and I had two hours for this thing instead of 45 minutes to an hour. So, you know, for those who haven't read your book, and I can't imagine anybody who hasn't, but for those that don't, how did you get started in HVAC? Well, as uh, as you know, Mark, was a ninth grade high school dropout, had gone to prison for a number of years. And uh, in 2003, at 40 years old, I walked out of prison for the last time and had made a decision that I was going to change the course of my life. So I was at that shelter. And of course, I was trying to find a job. And I was out knocking on doors every day for about six months. And being a ninth grade high school dropout uh, with no education, no skills, no trade, and a convicted felon to boot at 40 years old with no experience, um, it's pretty hard to find a job. So I knocked on doors for six months, and finally in June of 2003, I walked into a little an air conditioning company, and the guy asked me if I could sell air conditioners. I told him I thought that I could, and they gave me a job. And uh, in fact, the guy that uh, interviewed me is a, a mutual friend of ours, Drew Cameron. Drew had been hired wow. by this local contractor to come in and do some recruiting. And so I walked this room with uh, Drew Cameron with this, uh, you know, his kind of uh, mafioso, thick black hair combed back over his head and pretty intimidating oh, yeah. character. He's not as, you know. Yeah, he's a yeah. made guy, no question, yeah. For, for sure. And uh, But he interviewed me, and he liked me, gave me a shot, and uh, and it worked out. I went out my first month in this business. I sold $149,000 of air conditioners. I made myself a big, fat commission check. And uh, I've never looked back. The last 15 years, I've made my living in this industry, either as a contractor, or a salesperson, or as a consultant, kind of speaking training type of thing. And man, have you made a big splash. You made the most. Now, I remember reading in your book that uh, the guy that there was, there's two stories that, that kind of resonate with me. One was the, uh, the piece of paper with your goals and the toothpaste. Would you mind uh, yeah. telling that story? Yeah, that's a, that's a, a great question, Mark. So in uh, 1996, I was about... Uh, uh, I was 32 years old, and I had seven years left to serve in prison, and my father had passed away. And when my father my father died, that was kind of my turning point and decided I was going to 
changed the course of my life. And uh, so I began to study and read, trying to figure out, you know, how do you change your life? You know, how do you turn the Titanic around kind of thing? And I started reading and studying. And one of the things I learned very quickly is uh, kind of related in that famous Ralph Waldo Emerson quote that we become what we think about all day long. And I started kind of examining my thoughts and the things I habitually thought about, realized that they weren't very healthy. It was about prison. It was about fear. It was about poverty. It was about drugs. It was about violence. And so I, I realized I needed to start putting more significant positive things in my mind. So I sat down and I wrote out what a perfect life for me would look like. I wrote on the sheet of paper that I was an awesome father to my son, which, of course, I wasn't at the time I had abandoned him. Uh, he was three years old when I went to jail that last time. And um, I wrote on that sheet of paper that I'm wealthy beyond my wildest dreams. I have a beautiful wife. I have a beautiful home in Maui. And uh, I wrote them on a sheet of paper. And I stuck uh, toothpaste to the back of that sheet of paper and stuck it on the wall on my cell. And there it sat for the next seven years. And every morning and every evening, I would review that list and imagine what it would be like to be that person, have that life, and not realizing, of course, what I was doing at the time because I just didn't have the knowledge. But I was literally changing the neural connectors in my brain. And those new wonderful things became the expectations. They began to drive new emotions. The new emotions began to drive uh, new actions, you know, healthier behaviors, and the healthier behaviors eventually drove, you know, better results. So, writing that uh, that list out and sticking on the wall of my cell was a very important part of, you know, kind of the overall transformation. You literally thought your way out of prison, the self-imposed one and the actual one. I started thinking about what I think about before I think about it. <laughs> think about that. <laughs> I will think about that for a while. I might not be able to get that out of my head. <laughs> it sounds so simple, right? To bombard your yeah. subconscious with what you want to have happen instead of what has happened in the past. Right. You know, it, it's funny. Uh, my second book is a book called The Power of Consistency, and I go into a lot of detail about why it is that our thoughts end up showing up in our lives, for better or for worse. And when the book came out, uh, it hit number five on the uh, New York Times bestsellers list and number two on the Wall Street Journal bestsellers list. And I got a call from a guy named Ed Nottingham. Uh, Ed is, has written a couple of books of himself. He's a neuroscientist, a clinical uh, psychologist, a PhD, very, very smart guy. And he got in touch with me through, a, through a, a, our office, and he, he got on the phone. And he said, Mr. Long, I got to tell you, this book, The Power of Consistency, is the simplest explanation of the neuroscience behind decision-making and results and the principles that are the underpinnings of rationally motivated behavior therapy that I've ever read in my life. <laughs> of course, I was like, there's a name for this stuff? <laughs> you know, it's like, right? it's just all common sense because it is simple, right? What, what do our mothers tell us? Be careful what you wish for. That's how right. simple this advice is, but it's very, very true. And if it's true that you'll be the same person in five years except for two things, the books you read and the people you associate with, who are the, who yeah. are the, what were the books that you read and who were the people you associated with? Another great question. So when my father died on June 10th of 1996, I was in my cell and was just overwhelmed at the loss of my father. And I had this three-year-old son that I had abandoned and, you know, I was pretty overwhelmed and emotionally beaten down. And I, I, I walked out of my cell and went down to the end of the cell house. There was a little mop closet down there. And in that mop closet was a cardboard box full of books. The cops would come in and just throw the books in that box and kind of donate them. And that was our library for this particular housing unit. And I'm going to that book and or that box rather, and I stumbled across a copy of uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. And I took that book back to my cell and I began to read it. One of the first things Dr. Covey talks about in that book is that you're not uh, 
you know, destined necessarily to live out of your past. You have the choice to live out of your imagination. And I remember thinking that and being so grateful, like, my goodness, my past, I thought I was, I thought that was it. That was pretty much the precursor to my future, right? And right. of course, my past was very negative and very uh, destructive. And, and uh, it was uplifting to know I could live out of my future, my imagination. And, uh, but that book became my roadmap. Uh, I remember reading that book and it was just, it just brought me alive. Dr. Covey, many years later, would uh, come to be a, a close friend and a mentor. And before he passed away, he actually endorsed uh, my first two books. And, um, but that one, another one that uh, Mark was really profound to me, and I know you read an awful lot, so I'm sure you've read all these, but uh, Man Search for Meaning, Victor Frankl. Oh, how do you find book. significance? Isn't that wonderful? To find significance in your suffering, to find meaning in the hard times. You know, that was another, another really powerful, uh, powerful book. Uh, Think and Grow Rich, the classic, you know, Napoleon Hill. You know, I don't think there was anything original about what I did. I read all the same books that you read. I just read them 30 years after you read them. Right? <laughs> I was just late to the party. But it's all the right. same books. Right. And Man's Search for Meaning, Victor Frankl, for those that don't know, he was interned in a Nazi death camp. And his, he lost his wife, uh, his parents, and his, I think his brother. And they were killed by the yep. Nazis. And he, he, he says in that book, you, the one thing the Nazis couldn't take away was how he responded to what was happening to him, his attitude. Right. Yeah. And in effect, yeah, that's what he did. Yeah, in that book, he says, when you can no longer control the circumstances around you, you are left to control the only thing you can, which is yourself, your thoughts, like you said, your responses. What a powerful yes. book. And I, I bet you, Mark, if you took a poll, uh, of guys like you and me that have, you know, had some tough times and then, you know, built some pretty successful lives thereafter. I bet everybody in that group, most of the vast majority would have read that book. It's such a powerful book. I recommend it to everyone. When people talk to me about one book, what's the one book? Well, first I tell them my books, of course. And, uh, of course. Yeah. What uh, kind of marketing but, uh, would you be, uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I tell you, one of the most profound books I've ever read, uh, Man Search for Meaning, such a powerful book. Well, the, when I first read that, I was feeling sorry for myself. My wife had been hit by a car, and she was in a cast and operations, wow. and and I was I was really feeling sorry for myself. And I read that book, and I went, "I have no problems." He did. He did right. two things I thought were profound. One, he said, while he was there at, at Auschwitz, he said, "I tried to help others that were there. I'd give him some of my food. I'd give him words of encouragement." And he said the other thing he did at night was what he called logotherapy, and that was basically visualization. Back to what you said, the Emerson right. quote, we become what we think about all day long. So he imagined yep. being back in Austria speaking to a 1,000 students because he was a college professor. And he, he visualized yep. that every single night, and he said that literally got him through. Yeah, I thought that was so profound. I remember reading that, too, and, and, and the years that he sat there just visualizing, giving his lectures. Uh, again, living out of his imagination, not out of his current circumstances. And what was that profound? And that was one of the books that, along with Think and Grow Rich, that really led me to the whole visualization uh, process. You know, Napoleon Hill said, "Imagine yourself already in possession of these things that you want." You know, and and that was visualizing. Okay, I'm already this person. I'm already. I have this beautiful wife. I have this beautiful home. I have this beautiful life. And and uh, visualizing it, uh, it's like. Uh, you know, uh, another mutual uh, kind of uh, mentor of ours, Wayne Dyer. Wayne Dyer right. said, "You won't, uh, you won't, you won't believe it after you see it. You'll see it after you believe it. You got to right. see it first. No, that's really true. Uh, you know, all those guys had a profound effect on my life. Napoleon Hill calls it auto suggestion. I love that. <laughs>
That word didn't even exist when he wrote that in 1935. Right. Yeah, that was a new word. About, uh, right. You were talking about Victor Frankl and putting things in perspective, and like he was the precursor to the saying, you know, first world problems. Like, get over it. <laughs> right. He didn't say that, but that's what he was thinking. Like, get over it. There's somebody out there with the same problems you have with no legs, you know, or no arms or whatever. Just some, you know, our situation times 10 worse, you know. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm complaining about my hangnail, and this guy's in Auschwitz. Right. I mean, you know, so come on. Well, in your defense, I mean, the hangnails are really tough, but, you know, I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> you're not a whiner. You don't strike me as a whiner, Mark. You've never been a whiner, but so if, if, if you're complaining about a hangnail, I'm going to go out on the limb and say it's a really serious hangnail. You know, it is what it is, right? That's not just the first world problem. That's like a, you, have a, you can have a hangnail in a third world country, and it's just as bad as in a, in a, you know, for a rich white guy like you. Yeah, By the way, well, one, one of the, the best pieces of advice I ever got in my life came from you, Mr. Mark Madison. Just oh, yeah, what we're talking about advice and mentors. And so a number of years ago, after we met uh, out at uh, that Comfort Tech event, and you were gracious enough to introduce yourself and uh, to say hello, uh, went back home. And uh, I think you were reading The Upside of Fear. You had done a, re a review of the book. And yes. lucky for you, by the way, it was a good review because I know where you live now. Uh, but you and I were talking to the phone, I, I think before you did the review, I think you were telling me you were going to review it. And we were just talking about business and, and, and our speaking businesses, uh, the contracting business, just business in general. And I was telling you about my situation. I had, was had a lot of overhead with office staff and different things. And, but, you know, we were generating all this revenue and these millions of dollars. And he said to me, well, that's great, but it's not about how much you, you make or you generate, it's about how much you keep. <laughs> I was like, whoops. And I was in the driveway in my house because uh, I had I was driving when we were talking. I got to my house. And I was just parking the driveway talking to you. And boy, I'm telling you, when you said that, it was like a nail in the forehead. And mm. it has driven virtually every business decision I made since then. It's about how much do I get to keep. And I have completely restructured my company the last few years based on that advice from you. So you're right there with Stephen oh. Covey and uh, Napoleon Hill and uh, Victor Frankel, pal. Well, just send the check. That's fine. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, no, you told me to keep it all. Told me to well, keep right, it exactly. Yeah, well, why would you give it to me? Yeah, keep it yourself. <laughs> well, and that's the great thing about what we do. I mean, you and I, we live in a strange world, right? We travel every week. We're on airplanes. We're talking in front of thousands of people. And next week, I'm talking to a thousand people in Pennsylvania. And, and you know, I have friends say, oh, do you have to travel? I said, no, I get to. Are you kidding? Right. I get to do this. I mean, I dreamed about this for years. And then one day, you know, somebody said, how much do you charge? And I said, I don't know how much you get paid. You get paid for this? You know, I was doing free talks to kids. And, and you know, all of a sudden, I, somebody sent me $250. And I went, wow, that's amazing. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty extraordinary life when you think about what, you know, where we came from. Because, you know, the, the only difference between you and me, Weldon, is I didn't get caught. If I'd have got caught with the things right. I was doing in my early 20s, I'd have been your cellmate. So right. You'd have been a lot of I fun, mean, too. If it, it would have been cell, if you'd been running the cell house, though. You'd have been running a store uh, <laughs> and making lots of money in there. I know what I'd you'd be Morgan Freeman <laughs> in Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, right. <laughs> you'd, be a, you, you'd be a guy who could get things. <laughs> I could get things. Yeah, that, that would be me. Yes, sir. No, in 79, yeah. man, I was homeless, carless, jobless, and penniless. So, you know, it's uh, it's funny how things work. How many talks a year do you give, Weldon? Well, you know, it kind of depends whether it's a, tr uh, a training. You know, sometimes it's a one- or two-day training. Sometimes it's a keynote. Uh, some days it's consulting. But I'm on the road pretty much 
probably three days a week on average, probably 150 days a year. It's actually uh, more than I like and trying to find some ways to cut back, but it's hard to say no. In fact, I was, my March schedule was absolutely slammed. I have been on the road every day this month. I've been home. In fact, Saturday night, I got home about 11 o'clock at night and I left 11 o'clock the next morning got to California. So it's, it's been kind of one of those months, but I got a call no, um, back in February and it was a request to come speak for an organization called Lifeline Connect. Lifeline Connect is a, uh, a resident, a residential treatment uh, facility in uh, in Champaign, Illinois. It's a nonprofit, it's a faith-based organization, and uh, they take guys in for it's an 18-month program, and they live they live there, and and they 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 help them recover and help them with work. I mean, it's a powerful, powerful program, 18-month program. So they're raising money because they're trying to they're trying to build a new facility. They only have six beds. And they want to build a 24-bed facility. So they contacted me to come out and speak at a fundraiser they were having uh, last Friday night. So I did that. And uh, we raised over $100,000 in just a few hours. And you did it pro bono. Well, actually, so it was really interesting. Uh, They had paid me a fee. I gave them a discounted fee for the keynote, somewhere around around $10,000. But I was so impressed because I spent the day at the facility meeting the men. And then involved with the whole community the whole day, doing some radio and television promotion for them. And I spoke that night. And just before I went on stage, the lady who's the uh, foundation president came to me and said they had a benefactor who was going to match dollar for dollar every dollar that they raised that night up to Mm $100,000. And I had already decided I was going to make a donation from the platform because, you know, what a better way because I'm asking there was 350, 400 people there. I'm like, you got to give. You got to give till it hurts. Well, I got to put my money where my mouth is. And I had right. originally decided I was going to give a couple of thousand dollars to this, to this, you know, cause. I got so caught up in the whole thing. I'm like, when I found out she was doubling it on the stage, I, I said, I'm, I'm going to I'm, count me in for $10,000. Right? So I gave him the feedback, but it was matched by this, this wonderful person. And uh, so my 10,000 was actually worth 20,000 to the, uh, to their fundraising efforts. It was a remarkable night, a hundred thousand dollars, about 120,000 in one night. I thought it was out. They pulled me back in. I mean, right? <laughs> right. I mean, exactly. Exactly. I was happy well, that's good day. karma, though, brother. That's good karma. It was uh, really an extraordinary experience. I tell you, I felt blessed to have been chosen to go do that fundraiser. And the, the, the men, the women that I met, they had the men come up that have, are graduates from the program, uh, their wives, their children. And holy Toledo, the, they, the chief of police was right there in the front row. I had to keep a pretty close eye on him. But it was just uh, it was a remarkable event. Uh, Lifeline Connect. And uh, no, I Illinois. And, you, know, it, it, you know, you hear about the opioid crisis, the drug addiction crisis, and you hear politicians talking about it. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Well, it's going to get fixed at the local grassroots level, just like those guys did in, in Champaign. That's that's where it's that's where it's going to get fixed right there. I agree. I did some work a number of years ago with Evergreen Manor in Everett, Washington, and I was on, I was on retainer. I did I don't know. I probably did ten seminars for them. And it was a treatment center. And, you know, a friend of mine, uh, uh, you may or may not know this, but I have 38 years of sobriety and uh, clean and sober for that time. And so when when anybody in that in that world asks me to speak, I, I'm the same way. I uh, the answer is always yes. Right. Sometimes it's pro right. bono. And if they have some money, then I'll do it for the money. But that's not why I do it. And quite frankly, right. you know, I think at some point uh, you and I are going to get to that place. We'll be in our 80s saying things like, I remember when there was nothing from here all the way over to here. Right. We'll be that guy. Right. Lots of ball soup. Right. right. And uh, 
right. we'll still be doing it. And whether we need the money or not won't matter. It's, it's this is a calling. Yeah. You know, some people have a job. Yeah. Some people have a career. You and I have callings, and this is a calling for us. You know, when uh, when my father died on June 10th, I mentioned to you that uh, June 10th of 1996, the first book I picked up was The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Thirteen years later, I'm out of prison. I built my uh, HVAC company and uh, had just written the manuscript of my first book, The Upside of Fear. And I met Dr. Covey through an extraordinary one-in-a-million opportunity chance. I just happened to meet a guy. I've been trying to I've been trying to meet Dr. Covey for months because I was trying to get an endorsement from him for my first book. Publishers right. thought it was crazy. They were they were thinking like, get an endorsement from your mom, your neighbor. You're not going to get an endorsement from Stephen Covey. And, right. and, and uh, about five months later, I happened to be at a luncheon with a guy whose daughter was Stephen Covey's personal assistant. And he arranged this meeting. I got to meet Dr. Covey. And when I met Dr. Covey, uh, he gave me this big hug. He had just read the manuscript. And he put his right hand on my heart, repeated three times. You have a divine destiny. You have a divine destiny. You have a divine destiny. And I was like, holy Toledo, you know? And he said the divine destiny. I asked Dr. Covey, what does that mean? And he said, it's you and this story. People got to know no matter how low you go down. If you're willing to, you know, build your life on, on principles, honor, integrity, faith, fidelity, those things, that you can fix anything. And, uh, and then a few days later, Mark, he endorsed my first book, The Upside of Fear. And the day that he wrote the endorsement and sent it to me, and I didn't even know that this was not by design, I'm reading the email that he sent me, and uh, it was dated uh, June 10th of 2009, 13 years to the day that my father had died. And I picked oh. up a copy of The Seven Habits. Yeah. Dr. Covey used to call that the, the, the conscious and unconscious serendipity of the universe. Yeah, there's no and coincidence. I that's what it was. Yeah. 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 Well, we have similar Crazy stories. Stuff. I had two mentors, a guy named Bob Moad, who taught me the speaking business, and a guy named Charlie Tremendous Jones. And when I yeah. sent Charlie my manuscript for Freedom from Fear, he calls me two weeks later and he says, ah, oh, tremendous, Mark. He said, if you go write another book like that, you won't need to speak anymore. And that's how he <laughs> talked. I mean, that was just his personality. And I said, I don't understand right. what you just told me. And he said, I want to publish it. And I said, you want to publish what? I said, this, this little story you wrote. And I said, you're a publisher? And he said, what do you think Executive Books is, an underwear store? So <laughs> that was it. That was the beginning. And, I, and he said, I'm going to print 10,000. I'm going to give you 1,000 to sell in the back of the room. And I said, the back of what room? Right? I, I didn't <laughs> right. even know. I didn't even know the language of speakers. But right. see, here's the thing. Covey saw in you what Charlie saw in me. You reminded him of him. Hmm. He saw greatness in you. And he opened up your heart and let it out. And that's what Charlie did, yeah. did for me. He, I mean, he literally changed my life. You know, and, and it's is, funny, Mark. Because, you did right. all the heavy lifting, though. That's my point. See, you went to work for years on those things that he taught, and you were a product of what he taught. So there was a, there was a sense right. of pride attached to what you'd accomplished because you followed his advice. Yeah, he, he was in a large part responsible for it. I mean, he exactly. gave me the ideas and, and wrote the words. Listen, one of the things I learned that experience, and I, I wonder if, if you've learned the same thing. I mean, I'm, I'm certain you have. Isn't it true that the most successful people, like Charlie Tremendous Jones, Stephen Covey, that they're the ones that are most willing to lend a hand for, you know, with no expectation of anything in return? Tom Hopkins was the same way to me. You know, Tom Hopkins yes. endorsed my books, invited me to travel and speak with him. And then I've come across people who are, you know, nowhere is near well-known and famous and successful, you know, it's like they're angry, like, well, what's in this for me? And I, 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 won't, I won't give you the guy's name, but he, he's like a, a B or C level player in right. the personal development realm. 
And when I was writing my first book, I, I had uh, I had secured endorsement from Tony Robbins and from Stephen Covey. And I asked this guy, because he was pretty well known in my world. I knew who he was. For an endorsement, he wrote this letter back saying, well, what percentage could I get? You know, And he was all about you know what was in it for him. And I'm thinking, my goodness, Stephen Covey and Tony Robbins, the guys who were the biggest in this business, they gave freely of their endorsements and never even considered what would they get in return. And, and it yeah. reminded me just in, in life in general, like, and it reminded me, it's just funny because I, I, I have these memories of when I was in prison. And, you know, guys in prison, they always want to work out. They want to get in shape. And I would see guys out running around the track, guys who were overweight, that were trying to get in shape. And the guys that were like really in shape athletes, the guys in the weight pile, and they were jogging, they were lifting, they were always encouraging those guys. Right. And the guys who were a little overweight themselves, not doing anything about it, they were the ones mocking the guy. You know, mocking right. the guy said, hey, come on, fatty. Yeah, get you one more lap, fatty. And it's like I've always noticed that the people that are the most successful tend to be the most generous with their praise and with their support. And the people who are miserable SOBs are the ones that criticize everybody. Have you, ding, have ding, you ding, noticed ding, that ding. thing? Yeah. What does he yeah. win, Johnny? A brand new car. That's <laughs> yeah, exactly right. A new car. A new car. Yeah. They have an abundance mentality. And in that abundance mindset, they say, here, there's plenty for everybody. You know, I, right. I, I agree with you 100%. And, you know, you when I asked you for a quote for my new book, Freedom from Fat, you go, yeah, absolutely. When do you need it? And it was never, there was no hesitation. There was nothing. Uh, you know, Mark, Mark Sanborn gave me a really nice quote for Freedom from Fear. And he was, I think I was number, I was the third best-selling book at, for executive books at the time, but Mark was number one. And when I, when I called him and asked, he said, absolutely, what do you need? And when Charlie died at his funeral, Mark's about 5'9", maybe 5'10". And I walked up and introduced myself, and he goes, wow. He goes, you're a lot shorter on the phone. <laughs> right? So in addition to being gracious and kind and generous, they're also funny. They have a – they don't take themselves too seriously, I guess is what I'm saying. And, and the more successful they become, the less yeah. serious they take themselves. So there's some right. certain qualities. I agree with 100% of what you just said. It's – yeah, there's hey, well, not not to in, uh, in, engage in uh, you know total self gratification and uh, agri, agri, what's the word aggrandizement? I don't know self what's in my best self aggrandizement. Yeah, <laughs> that one. Uh, while we're talking about this, I've got a new book coming out in September, and I'd love to get your endorsement. It's called Consistency Selling. It's basically my sales process condensed down to a book, and I could really use uh, your endorsement. I mean, I could work out you know some points in the back end, and I know it's probably a big deal. I should go through your people, but. Well, I'm right here on the phone. I'm just going to ask. So no, I, I, here's my quote right now. Put this one on there. Unassertive salespeople have skinny kids. Read <laughs> this book. It'll change your life. There's your quote. It'll fatten your kids up. Yeah. You, you're in for tax problems if you read this book. <laughs> right. Oh, I like that one. You want yeah. tax issues? Read this book. Yeah. Right. There you go. Yeah. There's your quote. Yeah. Well, That's awesome. My, 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 yeah, my endorsement for my first book, if I had known you back then, you could have put you – you know, you want criminal problems? Read this book, The Upside of Fear. But, um... <laughs> well, it's weird that you yeah, and I both problem. use the word fear in our books. Yeah, you know, my yeah, that jumped out of me too. And yours, yeah, I mean, and, and that is it. It's it, You're either in, in a place of fear or a place of faith. You know, it's either yeah. love or hate. And and that, that's really what we've been talking about is if you come from a place of love and abundance and you're going to say yes to requests, you're going to help people. I get... I get phone calls and email and text every day. People ask me for reading this, this this morning. This woman said, 
can you give me uh, some advice? I met you, you know, last last week in Michigan, and she said we we talked afterwards. I said, yeah, I remember. And she said, can you give me some book recommendations? And I said, well, which topic? You know, give me a subject, right? right? And then she says, well, leadership, right. sales, or personal development. And I said, pick one, <laughs> right? Pick one. Let's narrow the search a little bit. So I sent her three book yeah. ideas from you know all three of those categories. But the point is. When somebody asks, the most successful contractors that I've been a, been fortunate to work with have the most generous spirits, yeah. and they'll they'll tell you all the things that they've done to be successful. And the contractors who struggle are the ones that withhold that information. And so that's a nice segue into me asking you about cracking the code. What's this thing you're doing once a week? Yeah, this show is really really an amazing value to the contracting community. Uh, as you know, I was one of the uh, founding faculty members of EGIA Contractor University. Been doing a lot of work for them the last couple of years, both developing online content, training content, uh, and also doing live events around the country for them. Well, one of the things they've asked me to do is to produce a weekly show dedicated towards helping the development of contractors across the country. And so we launched this new television show called Cracking the Code. And it's a weekly discussion, interviews, uh, training, content, answering questions that I do each week in Colorado Springs. And then we broadcast out to the entire community at no charge. Uh, they can go to egia.org and get more information on how to get it. It's a perfect, a perfect tool. They tend to run about 20 to 25 minutes each episode. And they're perfect tools to run a sales meeting or a service tech meeting or a company-wide meeting. You know, Mark, you and I, uh, the reason you and I have jobs is because people come to us for training and advice on, on their companies or their business, whatever it is. Right. And our experience and our training has given us the tools to, you know, to give that advice. Well, one of the problems for a lot of small contracting companies is they don't have weekly meetings uh, because they don't really know what to say. Or they have right. meetings and they turn out just to be a complaint session, right? Well, this weekly show is ideal. Uh, you can download it. You can watch it online, uh, however you choose to use it. And you can run that 20-minute, 25-minute show for your weekly service tech or sales meeting or a company-wide meeting, which is going to spur off a lot of good discussion. So we're really excited about it. Cracking the code, uh, again, go to ETI.org and you can get information on how to get access to it. It's completely free to the industry, which is remarkable. Bruce Madelich, who you and I both know very well, the CEO of EGIA, his, his mission is to be a true nonprofit in the contractor development business. You know, virtually, I think I heard one time, 96 or 97 cents of every dollar that comes in goes back into EGIA and the contract to develop. Uh, right. They offer services the training for virtually nothing. EGIA members, for example, get free tickets to all the live events around the country. You'd pay $2,000 or $1,500 to go to one of those events right. you know, for any other, develop, any other trade group. So it's, it's powerful. But, but this contract university is a big part of that. I appreciate you bringing that up. And we encourage everybody to uh, – to check it out, go to ega.org and find out more information. Now you can get that weekly show, Cracking the Code. And it's really about helping you develop your company and me talking to your people every single week. And I'd love to have you on that show, by the way. I'd love to oh, be on and do an interview, do a Skype interview and use you for a segment. We have a we have a, a, a segment on the show called Industry Titans. And I'd love to get you on that show to do our Industry Titans segment, interview you, and, but just do a Skype interview. And so maybe uh, maybe I'll have my people contact your people and we'll get that done. And we'll do lunch. Yeah, that'd be good. I'd need a lot of makeup, a little lot of makeup to get the shine off the top of my head. But 
Uh, hey, I know you suffer from the radio. same maladies, so right. <laughs> yeah. I got a face I just for tell radio. people I wore my I hair do. out. Yeah, I wore my hair out. Great. That's this. what I tell people. My wife is uh, for this committee at, at our daughter's school is doing this big benefit fundraiser, and it's uh, the the big theme party is an '80s party, and she sent me a, a picture the other day of uh, of the characters Kevin Bacon and whoever the girl was in Footloose. And yes. because we got to go retro 80. So she's, I'm going to get this tux for you and get this dress for me. She goes, I want you to go as Kevin Bacon. I said, I cannot wait to have that big, thick head of hair that Kevin Bacon had. It's going to have to be a oh, big wig. Man. Yeah. That's a big wig. That, you have the <laughs> dance moves to pull that one off? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you and I both have a face for radio. That's why this podcast <laughs> is perfect for me. So. Well, I'll tell you so, what, you look pretty, pretty snazzy when you put that black cowboy hat on. That is a good well, look, i got to tell you. I appreciate that. Thanks. I'm all hat and no cattle, though. So, you know. So <laughs> no, that. you got some cattle out there, pal. Yeah, you got some tough. cattle out there, pal. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. So so let me ask you this, because we are running out of time, and I want to make sure I, get, I ask this question before, we, before the, the clock strikes 12. If you had to offer a single piece of advice to contractors, for them to be financially successful, and I mean, you know, ab abundance in every way, what single piece of advice would you offer? Well, that is a fantastic question, Mark, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you two parts to it. I know you're asking okay. for one, but I'm going to have to give you two. Number right. one is what I call the, pros the prosperity mindset. It's the basis of my book, The Power of Consistency. To have the abundance mentality you talked about earlier, right? A, 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 a mentality of expecting good things. Um, of understanding that our, our, our habitual thoughts dictate our, our lives. If we have an expectation that homeowners are going to complain about price, guess what? They're going to complain about price. Right. If we have an expectation that homeowners are going to focus on value and buy from us, then they're going to focus on value and buy from us. So the number one thing is we have to shift our mindset. We have to get out of this mindset of expecting things to go wrong and, oh, my goodness, the competition's too cheap and, oh, my goodness, the weather isn't cooperating, you know, and, and that whole thing. The other thing from a more practical perspective is learn to sell. For some reason, our industry, all the emphasis is placed on the the technology, the operations, the beautiful installs, the you know the top notch service guys, and those guys are important. Don't get me wrong. But as IBM founder Tom Watson once said, nothing happens till something gets sold. Yes. And in our industry, the sales function is like handed off to like just you find somebody with a pulse who's breathing, and you're the sales guy. Right, no right. training, no competency, no maybe doesn't even like it, and that's our sales guy. The number one thing that I did to take my company from zero dollars in two thousand four to over twenty million dollars in five years was because we got really good at selling at the kitchen table, and it's not high pressure; it's about high service. One of the things I love about what EGI is doing is they're really helping contractors learn the skills they need to be very effective at the kitchen table, whether it's selling a service contract or selling a repair or selling an accessory are selling the full system. And those are uh, trainings that I'm really involved in, along with Gary Alex and Drew Cameron. Uh, there's a whole host of trainings, but my focus is primarily the mindset and the sales training. But learn to sell. Don't diminish that function. Don't look at it like something to be avoided. We have to elevate the sales function to the same level of importance as the operational stuff in our business. And it's a transferable skill, isn't it? Yes, sir. Absolutely. If it wasn't, Absolutely. we'd all be in trouble. I got to do a ride along a few weeks ago with a contractor, and he, this this guy was a pretty successful comfort consultant. This guy was doing well; he had a high close rate. 
and so I was sharing some ideas and some concepts with him about active listening and asking the right questions. And he said, well, uh, can you show me? And I said, yeah. So I said, watch this. And we went on a call. This guy, he's from India. He had a 7,000 square foot house in a gorgeous neighborhood. And I asked him questions about his family and about his kids and how long he lived in the, in the country and so on. And he talked for 45 minutes. And then finally, it was like he woke up from a, from a coma, right? He says, why, why are you guys here? You know, I mean, he called, right. he called that company, right? But, it, and then everything just flowed like water. And it was, it was obvious that the, the sale was going to happen. And afterwards, right. when we were debriefing, he said, that was amazing. That guy just opened up. And I said, yeah, that's what most people do. My German teacher yeah. in high school is the one that taught me that. She said, everybody has a story. Your job is to find out what that story is. And I found the best way to do that is what we've been doing today. Me asking open-ended questions and listening, and occasionally right. paraphrasing, and that's that, there's more to it obviously than that. But if you if you can't do that, then you can't have a seventy-five percent close ratio. It's just not going to happen. Right. You know, it, it's funny you mentioned that because I had almost uh, an identical experience not more than two weeks ago on a sales call. I was on with a guy. The homeowner was giving him all kind of grief. I don't want your spiel. I just want a cheap price. How much is it going to be? <laughs> and I I kind of intervened and started talking about 45 minutes about our kids and about uh, different things. And at the end of the 45 minutes, she turns back to the sales professional and says, now, what were you saying? And allowed him to go through his entire presentation. And all I did was kind of divert her attention uh, for 45 minutes. I heard something really interesting. I'm a huge fan of Robert Cialdini, uh, the guy who wrote the Persuasion oh. and Influence books. And, he sold uh, a million fact, copies of that book. Yeah, I love that book. Yeah, fantastic book. In fact, I, you know, that's where I, you know, I, I kind of his principles uh, combined with Tom Hopkins and a little Stephen Covey, is really where my sales process comes from. But I was watching some uh, uh, some video of, uh, of Robert Cialdini a couple of days ago. And he said, yes, it's true that people buy from people they like, right? Because we've all heard that, right? You want you want people to like you, right? They like you, they buy from you. But he right. said the, the real truth is, is people buy from people who like them. Yes. They want to feel that we like them through showing genuine interest in you know, sincere compliments and all kind of the traditional type of stuff. Right. But that's the beautiful part about what you do. You know, for people who haven't spent much time around you, when you're in a room, everybody in that room, and I tell you what, the, the, the person that, the only other person I've ever seen as good at this as you are is Tom Hopkins. If you're sitting mm -hmm. at a table with Mark Madison or with Tom Hopkins, he will systematically go around the table and engage each person. What's your story? What do you do? And I've seen right. you do the same thing in a room that you engage everybody, right? Whether it's the wait staff or whether it's the president of, you know, a very big company, you engage everybody. Tom Hopkins does the same thing. And what that does is that makes me like, wow, this guy likes me. He's right. interested in me. That's who I want to buy from. It's so simple. So it's not enough so just to be liked. Absurd. People have to know you like them. You know, uh, yeah. thank you for that, by the way. I appreciate that. I've worked really hard on that. And be because you can sum up what you just said, in one sentence, it's not about me. It's about the customer. Right. It's about the people at yes. the table. Yeah. Cialdini talks, Absolutely. I love that book. I've read that. I was doing a team building session for T-Mobile a few years ago in, in Colorado. And I had, you know, senior execs from the company. And uh, we, we were talking about books. And this one fellow from Arizona said, let me tell you something. Cialdini's book is my human relations Bible. He said, I have it on my desk. I read it every day. He said, I probably read it 12 times. 
Now I haven't read it 12 times. I've read it like four times, but the, yeah. the story that, that jumped out of that book for me was, it was one of those things where you just go, well, there were two. One was, <laughs> who was the, who was the guy that went to prison for Watergate? I forget that uh, guy's name. Yeah. I, yeah. The Nixon guy, the, uh, the guy that Holderman? basically, yes, thank you. So, yeah. so yeah, was one of those guys, right? One of those crooks. He, he, he gave Nixon three options. A choice of yeses, that's what I call them. The one was a million dollars that involved kidnapping in a helicopter. The second, that was a million dollars. The second option was $500,000, and there was no helicopter, but there was still some kidnapping. And then the third option was $250,000. That was, we were going to break into the Watergate Hotel and steal some stuff. And so Nixon went, oh, geez, I'm, not, I'm not using kidnapping. We're not doing helicopters. So he chose the $250,000 option. And in 1970, that was a lot of money. Right? right, but he gave them a choice of yeses. Right, and I, yeah, compromise and, choices. Yeah, and contractors need to do that. Well, here's our proposal. Well, no, here's three proposals: gold, silver, bronze. Right. right? Now, I, I was just doing some training on that, and I read a story uh, that uh, company Williams Sonoma. It's like a kitchenware company. Yes, uh, they're in all the malls across the country. They had this this bread baker that was uh, very very fairly priced. It was very high quality, and it baked bread for you in your kitchen. And they couldn't give them away. And then one of the store managers or one of the purchasing managers ordered uh, another bread baker that was much more expensive, and they put that in the store too. And when they put that one in the store, they could not keep the other ones on the shelf because yes. now there was, a, there was a compromise choice to go with the less expensive one. When there's only one item there, the compromise choice is nothing. Right. I buy this or I buy nothing. But if there's, like well, you said, a, a combination of yeses, that you can yes. compromise and buy something less expensive. Yeah, which one of these brilliant. yeses would you like? I know. Exactly. It's, it's a, By the way, do you do you know him by chance, Cialdini? Have you ever had a chance to meet him? No, I know he's a professor at Arizona State University, and I know he's yeah. in his like seventies now. He's not young. I'm asking everybody I know because I'm trying to get an endorsement from him on this new book, and my publisher says they don't know anybody. I got to find out who his agent is, but uh, I tell you what, because my book consistency selling is based on his consistency uh, consistency principles. You know, when I when I first got into prison, I was living in that shelter. I came across a uh, scientific mind or scientific American magazine. I can't remember the name exactly, but it was something I saw in a bookstore. And it was the first time I'd ever heard of sealed thing. This was probably 2003, 2004. Mm. And I read that article and he talked about, you know, the science of influence and persuasion and consistency. And I read that article. I'm like, wow, these would be brilliant principles in sales. And so I've always right. applied them in the, in the sales, you know, uh, role and just dude's genius, straight up genius. Well, P Patricia Fripp was the one who, who, told me about Cialdini and and I immediately went out and bought the book and it's one of those books that'll literally change your life. Yeah. Yeah. If you're well, in sales you if you're know, in business, you have to read it. It's really obvious that uh, you know you and I could talk for two, three more hours and we we, you know, we'd still run out of time. <laughs> Closing thoughts, my friend. Well I just appreciate you so much, Mark. Uh, I appreciate you having me on your podcast and uh, I love what you're doing. I know you're doing a lot of work with EGIA as well as your other speaking and consulting and, and you do. And uh, I just appreciate the work that you do. It's always fun to talk to you. Uh, I think uh, that the audience out there is really fortunate uh, to enjoy what EGIA has put together. They bring guys like you and me and Drew Cameron and Gary Ellix and, you know, James Leitner, and a lot of really talented people together. And for the singular reason to provide content and value to the contracting community. And it's amazing, and I'm really, really fortunate to be a part of it, and uh, I'm really fortunate to be able to call you a friend. Uh, I feel the same way, my friend. You're, uh, you're a special guy, and your story's an inspiration. 
by able example, you've inspired millions of people to change their lives. And so I feel the same way. I feel honored to call you my Thank friend. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate and, that. And if you send me an email, I'll give you, you know, a, a more expanded quote for the book, by all means. And I, <laughs> I expect to get the manuscript, too. I want to read the doggone thing. I'll, I'll send it to you. I just got the uh, sub edits back from my editor, and I got to spend some time on it, but I'll send you a copy. Well, I appreciate that. You know, from a guy who flunked high school English, you know, book number five is doing well, and I'm really excited and happy about it. And I, I just pinch myself every day that I get to do this for a living. So, my friend, thank yeah. you so much. I know you took a pretty, pretty big chunk of time out of your day to talk to the audience, and I know they got a lot of – if they got half as much out of it as I got, then, you know, it was it was worthwhile. So as Roy Rogers would say, happy trails until we meet again. That'll do it for today's episode. As always, visit egia.org slash podcast to find this episode and archive of previous episodes, the online form to submit your questions for our mailbag segment, links to subscribe to the podcast on Apple and Google Play app, and a link to the latest EGIA snapshot survey. For more information about EGIA membership, visit www.egaa.org slash join. I'm Mark Madison. Thanks for letting me play in your sandbox. I'll see you next time.